Sup, you beautiful bastards. Hope you have a fantastic Thursday. Welcome back to the Philip DeFranco Show. Buckle up, hit that like button, otherwise we'll punch you in the throat and let's just jump into it. First bit of news here, I just wanna explain because maybe you've seen this headline that Subway bread is not actually bread. Well, it turns out that headline stems from a ruling from the Irish Supreme Court, with that court finding that Subway bread cannot actually be legally defined as bread under the Value Added Tax Act of 1972, with this ruling coming from an appeal from a Subway franchisee who argued that they should be refunded value-added tax payments because they claimed Subway's bread qualified as a staple Food. But apparently Subway's bread exceeds the sugar content limit allowed under the act, which means that it cannot be considered a staple food by definition. Which, according to the act, the sugar allowed in a bread product must be no more than 2% of the total weight of flour in the dough. And Subway's dough, it turns out across all their bread options, contain about 10% sugar content. So their bread gets expelled from the bread category and gets thrust out as if it was a, a cookie, a cake, or a brownie. Then of course, as we get closer, we're seeing more and more election news. With a big focus we've seen this week on actually registering new voters. Which actually, on that note, according to a statement from Snapchat, the company has helped more than 1 million people register to vote through its in-app tool, with more than half of the 1 million who registered through Snapchat doing so in less than a month. And while that number, of course, is less than the 2.5 million signed up through Facebook, that's still an incredibly impressive number, especially since Snapchat reaches a much younger audience. In fact, they said 56% of people who registered to vote through the app this year are first-time voters, and 65% are voters aged between 18 to 24. And even more notable, the company says that large amounts of its users registering are doing so in historically red or battleground states, with more signups to register being seen in Texas than in any other state, with some of the other largest additions coming from Arizona, Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina. We've also seen that it's not just social media platforms working to boost voter registration. This week, we've seen a number of influencers doing their part in their own unique ways. For example, we've seen Kylie Jenner taking to Instagram posting bikini pictures this week for her 196 million followers, essentially posting thirst traps with the caption, but are you registered to vote? Click the link in my bio. And according to a report on Wednesday, that resulted in nearly 50,000 potential new registered voters. And of course, those numbers are still likely rising. You also have the likes of YouTube's own David Dobrik partnering with Headcount, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit that promotes voter registration. Together, doing what Dobrik does, giving away Teslas. Specifically here, giving away five brand new Tesla Model 3s. And in order to win, people have to check to see if they're registered to vote on the Headcount website. Voter registration is not necessary, but participants do have the opportunity to register if they have not done so already. The contest started midday Tuesday, and by just Wednesday morning, Headcount said that the campaign had been a record-shattering success, generating 10,000 new voter registrations within the first hour of launch and allowing 23,000 people to verify that they had already registered. That number then continued to grow and we saw a headcount saying this morning that in 24 hours, more than 100,000 people had registered to vote through the giveaway and more than 250,000 others verified their registration status. With the organization adding, this is unprecedented in the entire history of celebrity-led voter engagement campaigns. But of course, those numbers are expected to grow in the coming days. With the contest not ending until 11.59 p.m. Eastern time on Sunday, October 4th. And once again, the age of the people involved here, that's important. Right, Dobrik's audience mostly consists of Gen Z and Millennials. And as Headcount points out, those groups make up 37% of all eligible voters, but they are drastically under-registered. Also, David's involvement here is, is standout to me, not only because that thumbnail though, but I mean, just think about the fact that now over 100,000 new voters are registered thanks to a guy that can't even legally vote. If you're unaware, David is a dreamer, a DACA recipient, so I don't know, it's just, it's a big standout thing to me. And the last bit of quickie news is this now viral clip of Representative Katie Porter. In the clip, we see Porter questioning Mark Aulis, the former CEO of the drug company Celgene, and she's asking him questions about the cancer drug Revlimid in connection to price gouging. Do you know what this number is? I... Does it ring I any bells? I, I think you're referring to my compensation in some way. 
Yeah, well, in some way, this was your compensation in 2017 for being CEO of Celgene, and that's a lot of money. It's 200 times the average American's income and 360 times what the average senior gets on Social Security. Now, of that 13 million, about 2.1 million came from your company hitting yearly earning targets. Um, and more than half of the bonus formula was based on those targets. Any increase in the price of Revlimid would also increase your bonus by increasing earnings. Isn't that right, Mr. Ellis? If revenues increased and expenses did not, then earnings would be enhanced. And Thank you. Mr. Ellis, in fact, the oversight the committee found that if you hadn't increased the price of Revlimid, you wouldn't have gotten your bonus. Mr. Ellis, do you know how much you personally received in bonuses over two years, the last two years, just because Celgene raised the price of this one drug, Revlimid? I receive very generous compensation, but I don't know the exact number that you're referring to. In fact, you personally received half of a, half a million dollars personally just by tripling the price of Revlimid. So to recap here, the drug didn't get any better, the cancer patients didn't get any better, you just got better at making money. You just refined your skills at price gouging. And to be clear, the taxpayers spent $3.3 billion on Revlimid. So two things. One, if I ever see Katie Porter walking towards me with a whiteboard, I am running the other way. And two, I want to give you some more information as it pertains to this now viral clip. Because that clip and the hearing that it is from are incredibly notable because they mark the conclusion of a nearly two-year-long investigation by Democrats on the House Oversight Committee into prescription drug price gouging. And the reports from that investigation, two of which were also released yesterday ahead of the hearing, are insanely damning. Hitting on the insane price gouging, price hikes on essential drugs that people need to to survive, all in the pursuit of insane profits and in this case, generous executive bonuses. We saw the companies defending the price hikes, saying that they're above board, merited. All is, for example, telling representatives, the pricing decisions for our medicines were guided by a set of long-held principles that reflected our commitment to patient access, the value of a medicine to patients in the healthcare system, the continuous efforts to discover new medicines and new uses for existing medicines and the need for financial flexibility. Right, but like in that clip, you have Porter pointing out that essentially a drug now costs three times more and the drug didn't get better, the manufacturing didn't, change, it's just been approved from new uses. Arguably even more damning is the fact that there are internal documents and emails that are included in this report, showing that they raise prices unrelated to costs in order to meet quarterly profit goals. Also, you had the CEO of a company called Teva. He defended jacking up prices for a drug the company makes to treat multiple sclerosis called Copaxone, saying, in order for any pharmaceutical company to research and develop new drugs or improve old ones, the price of successful medicines must reflect the significant cost of ongoing research and development projects. But as this damning report notes, they found specifically that Teva had only spent spent $689 million on research related to Copaxone since 1987. They made $34 billion in net revenue just from that drug. That is 2%, which you could say, you know what, but if there are other competitors in the market, they could compete for price, drive it down. Well, there, the report also found what has been described as the clearest proof to date that both of the companies at the center of this story engaged in anti-competitive behavior to force competitors out of the market. Now, as far as what happens next, I, I can't tell you. You know, in a letter prefacing reports, you had the Oversight Committee Chair emphasizing the need for comprehensive legislation, such as, for example, the drug price bill passed by the House back in December, known as HR3 which would reform the system by allowing Medicare to negotiate directly with drug companies over prices. But as the committee chair noted, that bill basically died because President Trump openly opposed it and Senate Republicans refused to even bring it to a vote. So for now, you know, you have this viral clip, there's more attention on it in the moment, but 
really, it seems like there's little hope for sweeping reforms right now. And then for the last story today, we're gonna hop out of the United States. I, I know over the past few weeks and probably months, the show has been more US centric than usual. There's obviously a reason for that, but today we're gonna end on one of the most requested international stories, the fighting that has broken out between Armenia and Azerbaijan forces. Right, so they're fighting in a territory that is internationally known as Nagorno-Karabakh, although Armenians call the place Artsakh. And to be clear, I'm not taking a side or showing some kind of bias by using one name or the other. And the reason I wanna make that clear is because often in this conflict, what name you use can be an indicator of which side you support. All right, so with that said, of course, one of the first questions with this story is why is there fighting going on? Which brings me to my favorite part of the show, Outsider tries to oversimplify and condense thousands of years of history. So Armenians have virtually always been the ethnic majority in the region, although it has also had sizable populations of other groups as well. Notably here, Azeris, AKA people from Azerbaijan. The modern conflict stems from the Soviet era when Nagorno-Karabakh was transferred to the Azerbaijan Soviet Republic. And for the Armenians, especially those living in this area, that was a big issue, especially because at that time it was like 90% Armenian, but ruled by Azeris. Right in the late eighties, both Armenia and Azerbaijan went to war over the territory. Then when they both declared independence in 1991, so did the Armenians within Nagorno-Karabakh, calling themselves the Republic of Artsakh and to this day control most of Nagorno-Karabakh. There's this very bloody war leading to Armenians leaving Azerbaijan to Nagorno-Karabakh, while Azeris fled to other parts of Azerbaijan. We then see a ceasefire signed and we end up in this awkward situation where large parts of Nagorno-Karabakh were occupied by Armenia and in other parts of the territory, there's this semi-independent Republic of Artsakh. Now, all that said, no UN member state, not even Armenia officially recognized the Republic of Artsakh as independent. And the entire region of Nagorno-Karabakh is internationally considered to be the territory of Azerbaijan. And with that, it brings us to an end of the condensing and oversimplification and brings us to 2020, where we have seen the fighting between the two escalate, right? In July, we saw at least 14 die after fighting broke out, including two senior Armenian officers who were killed in a drone strike. Then this last Sunday, fighting broke out across the entire line of contact, that being the de facto border separating the Republic from the rest of Azerbaijan. But to note, this week's fighting was on a much bigger scale than usual. With that region's capital even being shelled and hit with drone strikes as part of an attempt by Azerbaijan to retake the region. After the fighting began, we saw the head of the Foreign Policy Affairs Department in Azerbaijan tweet out, around 600 hours on September 27th, 2020, the armed forces of Armenia have blatantly violated the ceasefire regime and are using large caliber weapons. Mortar launchers and artillery have launched an intensive attack on the position of the armed forces of Azerbaijan along the front line. With him also adding, the armed forces of the Republic of Azerbaijan are undertaking necessary counteroffensive measures to prevent another military aggression and ensure the security of the civilian population. The responsibility for the present situation and future developments lies squarely with Armenia's political military leadership. But at the same time, we saw the Armenian prime minister tweeting out, Azerbaijan has launched a missile and aerial attack against Artsakh. Peaceful settlements have been attacked. Armenian side has shot down two helicopters and three UAVs, destroyed three tanks. We stay strong next to our army to protect our motherland from Azeri invasion. Initially, there was some skepticism that the fighting escalated to such a point that tanks were blasting each each other. And as the week has progressed, we've gotten more footage and images from the fighting that shows that it is rather serious. For example, we know the fighting has led to both military and civilian deaths on both sides. The exact numbers right now are hard to pin down, but Armenia is claiming over 100 military and 23 civilian deaths. Also adding that 130 Azeri soldiers have been killed. But you have Azerbaijan claiming to have killed thousands of Armenian and Artsakh troops
troops, saying they destroyed 130 tanks, 200 artillery units, 25 anti-aircraft units, 5 ammunition depots, 50 anti-tank units, 55 military vehicles, with a report saying that the conflict has now even escalated outside of this region, even into Armenia itself, where an Azeri drone strike reportedly hit a bus. However, with how bad it's already gotten, there is still a chance that this could escalate to something much larger. Armenia has declared martial law and called for a general mobilization. That is essentially calling up the armed forces to get ready and be good to go when needed. While the Republic of Artsakh took the rare move of calling every able-bodied male to military service and Azerbaijan followed by declaring a partial mobilization. Now, with all of that happening, around the world we're also seeing countries coming out in various ways, showing support or calling for peace. For example, we saw Turkish President Erdogan sending out a series of tweets not only blaming Armenia for the attacks, but also saying it is the biggest threat to peace and tranquility in the region. Going on to call on Armenians to resist their government who use them like a puppet. With Turkey also saying they're ready to help Azerbaijan if they are asked, and that scares not only Armenia, whose Prime Minister has urged other countries to put pressure on Turkey not to intervene, but it also scares other nations because this could turn into a rather big regional war. I mean, three countries in the area, Turkey, Iran, and Russia, have long rivalries and support the combatants in different ways, but most of all, there are places like Russia and Iran generally just want stability in the region. If Turkey were to step in, it would put pressure on the others to intervene somehow. But we ultimately saw with most countries that they weren't showing support for one side or the other, but rather asking that they de-escalate the situation. For example, you had an Iranian foreign ministry spokesperson saying on state TV, Iran is closely monitoring the conflict with concern and calls for an immediate end to the conflict and the start of talks between the two countries. French and Russian officials also calling on both sides to stop fighting. And they are particularly important because they're part of a group called the OSCE Minsk Group, which was responsible for mediating the ceasefire between Armenia and Azerbaijan back in the 90s. Right, That same group, at least on paper, still tries to find a peaceful solution to the situation, although that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. This because both Armenia and Azerbaijan have rejected any calls for another ceasefire. We've also seen the United States calling for peace. At a press conference on Sunday, President Trump told reporters that the U.S. was looking at brokering a peace deal. We're looking at it very strongly. Uh, we have a lot of good relationships in that area. We'll see if we can stop it. The former Vice President Joe Biden also speaking on the situation, saying, I am deeply concerned by the outbreak of hostilities in Nagorno-Karabakh and call for urgent de-escalation, restoring the ceasefire, and a resumption of negotiations between Armenia and Azerbaijan. The United States should be pushing for more observers along the ceasefire line and calling for Russia to stop cynically providing arms to both sides. Also, here in the United States, the situation ends up being extra complicated because of our major Armenian population. The U.S. officially has 500,000 people of Armenian ancestry in it, although unofficial estimates say that number is as high as 1.5 million. Notably, the Armenian population is also very politically active. Right back in 2019, they fought to get the Armenian genocide officially recognized by the U.S. government, despite the objections coming from Turkey. Their activism also led to a situation where although the federal government does recognize Nagorno-Karabakh as part of Azerbaijan, plenty of state governments in the U.S., including massive states like California, recognize it as the independent republic of Artsakh. And while that recognition is largely symbolic, some of these activists are pretty influential, sometimes even meeting with the president. For example, right, we saw Kim Kardashian tweeting out, We are praying brave men and women risking their lives to protect Artsakh and Armenia. The news is misleading and these are not clashes. We need international observers to investigate and call for international political and diplomatic measures to prevent unnecessary escalation and tragedy. And then asking people to put pressure on the White House and Congress around this. As well as tweeting, call upon Baku to cease all offensive uses of force, cut off all U.S. military aid to Azerbaijan being used against Armenians, and warn Turkey to stop sending arms and fighters to Baku. And she has not let up this week, being rather consistent retweeting videos of Armenian officials declaring they refuse to lose the conflict, pushing for Turkey to be sanctioned. But ultimately, that is where we are with this situation. And it will be very interesting to see what happens with this situation because it is set to escalate from here. There are a lot of moving connected pieces, both locally and internationally. But on that 
happy note. That is the, uh, that's the end of today's show. Also, if you're new here, definitely hit that subscribe button. And I always recommend text me at 813-213-4423. Notifications for new shows, behind the scenes, some other stuff that we're working on. But yeah, with that said, of course, as always, my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces and I'll see you next time.